If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14, Acts 14. Today is both the last sermon in this series that's, that's from Acts 14, but it's also uh, the last message on, on the, the three messages of important stuff in church life. And I know it's a lame title, but that's the way it goes. Um, we're going to be mainly looking at verses 27 and 28 today, but we're going to start a few verses before that and then take a minute, uh, a minute or two to contextualize it. Okay, so it'll give the kids a chance to find the nine bingo pictures that are going to be hidden in that, that one particular thing. So by the way, it's right here, the treasure chest for you bingo kids. Um, so beginning in verse 23, this is where we're going to start. And when the apostles had appointed elders for the believers in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Now, some of y'all may remember the big picture of this narrative, but it's been a while. So for those of you that don't, um, that's fine. Here's a quick backstory. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas left their home base in a city called Antioch. And Antioch probably had the greatest concentration of Christians outside of the city of Jerusalem, uh, maybe even more than Jerusalem at this point. And Paul and Barnabas had left there as missionaries, and they traveled across the edge of modern-day Asia. They're kind of down on, uh, on the, the coast of Turkey, sort of, but a little ways inland. And anyway, um, they were preaching the gospel. That's their whole thing. They were going on this missionary journey. They are preaching the gospel. They are planting churches. And they encountered a lot of difficulty along the way. You know, sometimes they were slandered. Um, sometimes they left a place, you know, willingly, and other times not so much. Um, you know, one time Paul was even, the, a mob attempted to stone him to death, almost succeeded. Um, in the passage that we just read, though, the apostles installed elders in the new churches, and they did that to govern them. And then Luke uh, kind of describes their route back uh, to Antioch by way of most of the cities that they had already been to, that they had kind of gone back through the same, um, you know, the same route. And so by digging into those passages over the last couple of weeks, we saw the importance of elders in the church. We saw the importance of, uh, of action and trust when it comes to making disciples. Uh, we looked at why we should water what's been planted. We, looked at, we talked about filling our cups from time to time uh, and what that looks like in action. Today we're going to wrap up with the last two verses. In Acts 14. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's bow. God, I just ask in Jesus' name for everybody here uh, that we will soak in your word this morning. I pray that we're good soil and that the seeds that are planted take root and bear fruit in our lives and that they bring glory and honor to you. We ask that you will help us uh, to, to be fully cognizant of your Spirit's work in us and help us to do the things uh, that we learn we need to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, all right, I, I'm hopeful, friends, that by examining today's text, we're going to see the importance of two more things in the life of the church, okay? And they are fellowship and testimony. Fellowship and testimony. So I want to encourage you to listen carefully today and, and kind of see you know, how well you feel that you do these things, personally, these two areas, fellowship and testimony. And while you're at it, you might evaluate how you believe that this church and even Christians in general are doing at those two things. And, and of course, there's always room to grow, and I, I hope that, I hope this, this message motivates all of us uh, towards improvement, both as, as a congregation and as individuals in our own lives. So let's take a look at the first one here, fellowship. 
What do you think of when you hear the word fellowship? Potluck, right? Food. That's a, a food, folks, and fun if you were around in 1990, right? And, and those things are definitely connected to the idea of fellowship. That, that's absolutely true. Uh, but sometimes it seems that churches have made fellowship just about food, folks, and fun. And while many have fellowship dinners, which are great, they are absolutely wonderful to have. They do not encompass, though, the idea of fellowship any more than our song service encompasses fully the idea of worship. If we dig into it, Christian fellowship is way more than just having a meal, right? The Greek word translated fellowship, you've heard it before, is quanonia, and it, it literally means partnership or participation or even communion in the general sense, not the Lord's Supper necessarily, but but communing with one another. It's a very deep, it's a much fuller expression than just hanging out, okay? So what does it look like? We're going to see how this passage describes this. It says, and when they, when they arrived and gathered the church together, so right up front here, gathering together is a primary facet of fellowship. In fact, unless there are two or more parties, there, there can't be fellowship, right? So it requires the gathering of two or more, which probably sounds familiar, uh, but it's good for us as a church, it's good for us to come together as believers and provide a ministry of presence for one another. Have you ever heard that, that phrase, a ministry of presence? It's a sense of, of serving someone by being there for them. Uh, I used the example earlier of sharing a meal. I want to reiterate, that's a good thing, okay? Because eating together, uh, that's actually one of the ways that we share everyday life. And so it's really, I love that we have potlucks every third Sunday. I love that we do the Wednesday night dinners. Um, it's, it's mainly Miss Mary and, and a few other volunteers that help out. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that we do that. Um, and, and one thing I really like about it is just getting to watch people sit down and talk together. You know, it's, it's, it's great to see y'all loving one another by just sharing yourselves. You know, you, you listen, you encourage one another. And, and we do that while we eat, and that's why these gatherings are so much more than just a meal. But I don't want to get too far ahead of the point yet. So for now, just note that gathering together is the first step of quanonia, but there are other distinguishing marks of biblical fellowship, and we're going to talk about some of these. So in the meantime, uh, let's return to this idea that the apostles gathered everyone together. There was a, a purpose behind this. It wasn't just like a random, casual meeting. You know, they, they had, the, and I think this is instructive for us as well, they had a reason to get together. Why were they gathering the church together? It tells us in verse 27, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door to faith or of faith to the Gentiles. So what are they doing here? Oh, how about that? <laughs> We're going to come back to that. In the grand scheme of things, simply put, they were glorifying God. They were glorifying God specifically by bearing witness to what he'd been up to. We're going to dig into the content of the message in a little while. We're going to get to that. That's what we're going to talk about. All right. But for now, let's focus on the fact that they gathered the church together with a mind to testify to God's work. Okay? Anyone here ever been to a missions fair? Do you even know what that is? Wow, okay. Well, I, I grew up at, uh, at, at Valley View Christian Church, which is in North Dallas. It's, um, it's my church of origin. And we used to have these, these really cool annual celebrations where, like, everybody 
uh, all the missionaries that VVCC supported all over the globe, they would come together um, to the states at around the same time, and then they would, one Sunday night, the whole basement of the church, which, which was huge, they, they, we had these tables that would be set up, and, and they would put up displays that would showcase the various ministries and missions, and, and there were sometimes slides, you, you remember those? Not like slides, like wee, but slides, like, you know, um, but they would have that. But they would have reports on their ministries. They'd bring clothing. They'd bring currency. Uh, sometimes they brought weapons, which was really cool. Um, you know, so it was fun. But we don't do mission fairs here. But instead, what we do, as most of you all know, uh, we do intentionally bring in people from our five ministries and missions that our church helps to support. And we do that um, basically on a monthly basis. And seeing what God is doing is what our third Sunday mission presentations are about. Okay, it's not just a check-in, right? And in each instance, we either have a missionary come in or or else Dave or somebody else will will make a presentation on behalf of a ministry and talk about what God's hand has been doing in that ministry. And that's similar to what Paul and Barnabas were doing here at Antioch. They, They wanted people to know that they were being accountable both to the Lord and to his mission. And they wanted to share how God had been working through them. And that's definitely one way to glorify God. But but it's obviously not the only way. But it is a way. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that we can glorify God in our fellowship dinners? Yeah, absolutely. Or when we duct tape a kid to the wall in youth group? Yeah? I think think we can, right? Does it happen automatically? That's the harder question. Good, I saw you shake your head right off the bat. Nope, it doesn't happen automatically, okay? What is our intent in meeting, and what's our attitude about meeting? If the the intent of our hearts is to glorify God in all things, that's going to carry over into our meeting, right? And our attitudes are going to reflect God's love toward one another. So does that glorify God? Oh my goodness, wake up. Does that glorify God? Yes, thank you. Track with me on a sidebar for a minute here. Isn't there a sense in which God is glorified by his children just being together and lavishing grace on one another? Yes, absolutely. A few years back, uh, I got a call from a neighbor who told me that she had seen Judah uh, walking Joshua and Jonathan home from school, which was rare, um, but she told me something neat about this. Um, Apparently, he got a bit frustrated with them. (laughs) And, and it was visible, but instead of screaming at them, she said he stopped and he turned and he, he patiently talked to them for a minute, and then they just continued on together as brothers. And this neighbor was very complimentary about this, and, and it was neat because it made me look like a good parent in spite of all the evidence of the contrary. It, was, it, made, me, it made me look good. It, it brought honor to the father when the children were loving each other. Does that make sense? Okay. So when we're together, when we're loving one another, I think it's the same with us. When we give each other our time and attention, that glorifies God, all right? And again, it's more than just hanging out. It's showing, it's showing Jesus to one another and to anybody else that's watching, you know. Um, now, don't, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that people uh, are going to come to know God simply by watching us. It goes back to that whole, you know, that terrible statement, <laughs> Preach the gospel uh, everywhere you go. If necessary, use words that drives me nuts. Most of y'all know that. Because you cannot preach the gospel without words. You have to use 
words to preach the gospel, but you're also supposed to live it. That brings ethos. That brings credibility to your testimony. Okay? But people aren't going to be saved just by watching us love one another. Okay? And I want you to understand that. Scripture tells us salvation is by faith. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes from the word being preached, etc. But, but if we're helpful, okay, in showing Christ's likeness to one another, then, then that certainly builds that credibility of our, of our testimony, of our faith. So anyway, in the sidebar. Um, so the apostles gathered the church together, and they shared all this great news about what the Lord had been doing. But then what? Then what? Luke says, and they remained no little time with the disciples. And I thought, um, I thought that was weirdly phrased. And so I looked it up in the Greek. And, and yeah, that's pretty much what it says. So, so to put it in American, they stuck around a long time. That's basically what that would say if it were trans, translated into our vernacular. They stuck around a long time, but with who? With the disciples, thank you. That, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to bore you guys with the Greek, but that, it's interesting to me. This is a Greek word, mathetes. It literally means students. In case you didn't know that, disciple literally means student. And that's, that, that's an idiom for Christ followers in the Scripture. And that's good. We ought to always be students of the Word, right? Always, okay? And you should always be learning more from the Lord. Because listen, if you stop learning, you're either dead or you're a dead man walking. You should never stop learning, okay? All believers in Jesus ought to be disciples. We ought to be continually growing in our faith and in our knowledge of God. But that growth doesn't happen in a vacuum, does it? That's a weird saying. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know what does happen in a vacuum? At our house, a third dog is created from what comes from the other two dogs. No, but really, to say something doesn't happen in a vacuum, that means things have causes and effects. Things have reasons for being, and they do things. So what causes discipleship? Or maybe a better question to ask is, where are disciples made? In a community. Disciples are made in community. We see that the apostles stayed around for a long time with the believers, which is surely beneficial for all of them. And I I think that we see here a third aspect of what good biblical fellowship looks like, and that's growing in community. Growing in community together. We grow as a result of bouncing off one another. Not physically, obviously. Spiritually speaking, don't get excited. Um, But... Hebrews 10 tells us not to forsake the assembly. You're familiar with that passage probably. It came out a lot when COVID was real hot. Um, but that means don't stay away from the assembly of believers, okay? But, but instead, he says, uh, the author of Hebrews says, spur one another on toward love and good works. So don't stay away from the church body, but get together and be together, <laughs> integrate, relate with one another. Of course, being together as believers shouldn't just happen on Sunday mornings for an hour, right? Or two, depending on how long the announcements are and how long the preacher goes. Um, but but there's, a reason, there's a reason that we have a midweek meeting for most of the year. There's a re- it's like a booster shot. Oh, that's not a good example today, is it? Oh, sorry, folks. 
It's like a good booster shot. Uh, you know, that, that's why maybe your preacher shows up at the door with a plate of cookies, or maybe some elders drop by to visit, or, uh, or maybe somebody just calls you up and says, hey, come on over, we're going to have, you know, we're going to smoke a brisket. <clears throat> Call me. Uh, anyway, it's because we're meant to be in community with one another. You know, the oft-used phrase, it's kind of a cliche now, but it's, it's doing life together is what people say. Do you know we're instructed in the Bible, and I didn't look this up, but I think it's 1 Thessalonians, to build one another up and encourage one another? Think about that. Build one another up and encourage one another. There's a fancy word for it. I love it. It's a super churchy word. You know what it is? It's a great word. Edification. Thank you. Edification. What does that mean? An edifice is a building. Did you know that? Edifying someone means to build them. Thank you for answering. Edifying someone means to build them up. We're to build one another up. And it, it's, it's hard to do that in a really short span of time. And especially when just a few of us are doing all the talking, right? And don't get me wrong. Okay, thank you. Don't get me wrong. The preaching of the word is the, it's the I believe it's the highest priority in the life of the church. But without consistent support in other areas of life, you're going to have a hard time growing. It can't all come from a pulpit. It has to come from your own time in the word. And it has to come from intermingling and interacting with other believers. So, friends, let, let, let's have fellowship in the most biblical sense of the word. You know, uh, watch each other's kids play basketball. You know, or have someone over for, for dinner or, or whatever. You know, invite someone you don't normally hang out with. And this, this is older people. And I don't mean, I mean my age, you know, older people, okay? I'm not talking like some of y'all fogies. I mean like older people. Listen, I'm, I'm kidding, but seriously, reach out. Reach out to younger people. Reach out to younger people, especially young adults. Listen, they need it. Young adults need your input in their lives right now. I don't think there's ever been a time in history that young adults are faced with so many pressures while being simultaneously so unequipped to deal with them. Pornography is everywhere. Isolation is rampant right now. You know, it's, it's eating people up. Anxiety and depression. Young people need the same anchor that we have, and we need to be able to, to, to point them to that anchor and show them how to cling to him by participating in their lives. Are we committed to being in community? And if so, are we committed to providing a community that fosters growth? And I hope the answer is yes. Because what that looks like, we're spending time together. We're seeking to glorify God and we're growing in community. If that's, if that's what's going on, then we're in the middle of some world-changing fellowship, y'all. So we should keep it up. But if we're not, that's what we need to be striving for. We need all three of those. According to 1 John 1, fellowship with Christ and fellowship with one another are intimately connected because, again, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, all right, we spent a lot of time on that first part. What we're going to do now is go back to that middle section, the testimony section, and dig a little bit deeper because this shows us the importance of testimony in church life. And as we said before, the apostles gave the church at Antioch a report, but it was much more than what they'd been up to and what they'd done. In fact, the contents of their report were focused on who? 
on the Lord, right, focused on God. Luke says they declared all that God had done with them. And first of all, I think it's pretty awesome that with all these guys have been through, they were not trying to be glory hounds, you know. They weren't, they weren't seeking to look good. They knew, they knew whose hand was behind all of this success when it came to the church planning. Even though they've been the main human players in this drama, they knew whose sovereignty was directing the whole thing. This is actually a pretty common bond, I think, a common theme with, with Bible heroes. They always seem to remember that God is the source of every victory, whether it's in the physical realm like David, or whether it's in the spiritual realm, like, like Paul and Barnabas. They're, they're quick to praise the Lord and their success, right? Even sometimes write a psalm. Anyway, uh, likewise, uh, Paul and Barnabas, were, they were declaring all that God had done with them. Declaring. What does that word mean? Announcing. Well, I declare, right? You know, it, it, it's, I love the word declare because it, it invokes fearlessness, you know? I mean, think of, think of the Declaration of Independence, right? To declare something is to state it clearly and openly so that anybody within earshot will understand what you're saying. That's a declaration, okay? It's a very important part of church life to be able to declare what God has done with us as individuals and, and, and how we have personally experienced God's hand in our own lives. We, we call that our testimony. Right, and I want to. Um, I want to, if you don't mind, just kind of bat this around for a minute with you guys. Um, how many of you in this room have ever been called for jury duty? How many of you actually made it to court to jury duty? A few. I'm going to very quickly share this story. Uh, Shannon and I have been married about six months. Um, we'd just gotten into a new house pretty uh, pretty recently. We'd had uh, we just found out she was pregnant with Judah. And we're like, wait, what? And I got a jury summons. And I opened the letter and I was looking, I was like, I don't want to go to this. I got so much going on right now. And so I was like looking down the list of possible exemptions and one of them was mental illness. And I checked it. And then in this place next to it, I wrote, in the last six months, I got married, got a house and just found out my wife is pregnant and they let me off. <laughs> so I just want to tell you guys that. Anyway, um, but since then, since we moved here in, in McKinney, I've gone to two um, jury duties, and neither time did I make it all the way to the trial. But most of us, if you haven't been in jury duty or you haven't actually been in a trial yourself, you've at least seen one on TV. Okay, you, and um, in some situations, maybe somebody in this room has actually had to give testimony in a court of law, and, and it's nerve-wracking. You know, for those of you that are like, yeah, I've experienced it. But it's important. In fact, oftentimes the most important part of a case that will sway a jury is a key testimony. Now, what about this? How many of you in this room have ever shared your personal testimony? A few? Some? I'm talking about the story of your life before Christ and then how God drew you to himself. And then what, what changed in your life? What difference that's made for you since then? I mean, hopefully you, you all have at some point. Maybe you've talked to a friend or to someone at work. Or maybe if you have kids, hopefully you've talked to your kids about it or, or another member of your family. But have you ever given your testimony in a formal setting? Raise your hand if you have. Really? I'm actually surprised. I didn't think that many people had. I think that our modern American church has grown kind of shy about giving our testimonies over the last few decades. Uh, 
There was a time when it was common. It seems to have kind of fallen out of favor. And I want to encourage you to consider that. Just consider whether we ought to bring formal testimonies back. Just think about that for a minute, okay? For a few reasons. I want you to hear me out, okay? If you're a note taker, I want to encourage you. Flip over your bulletin insert and, and take notes on the back because I'm, I'm going to give you three reasons I think we ought to revisit personal testimonies, okay? And then I'm also going to share some tips on how to give yours in a way that's good for other people to hear. So first, if a testimony is done correctly, it gives God glory. Second, if a testimony is done correctly, it edifies other believers. And third, if a testimony is done correctly, it can introduce the good news about Christ. So again, it gives God glory. It edifies other believers. It opens the door for the gospel. And does all three of these things by pointing to the cross. I almost turned around, but it's not there right now. <laughs> but it'll be back soon. Okay? Now here's the advice. I specified when it's done correctly because I've heard some really unhelpful testimonies. <laughs> and some of you guys probably have too. Uh, occasionally a person with a really sordid background will give a testimony that seems to relish the sin. And that is not helpful. You know, almost like they miss it. That's not usually an effective testimony. And it's really a fine line to walk because you want people to understand the depths of the sin that you used to be involved in that the Lord has drawn you out of and saved you out of. But, but you don't want to glorify it, right? You don't want to glorify your formal sinful way of life. You don't want to spend more time talking about all the evil stuff that you used to do than you do talking about what God is doing now and what he's done in you, you know? Uh, Toby McKeon once wrote, if you're seriously curious about my past, well, I once was lost, but now I'm free at last. And that's obviously not a whole testimony, but it's a solid outline. I once was lost, but now I'm free at last. You don't want to spend too much time talking about the stuff you used to do. Secondly, when you talk about your previous life, you want to explain what you now know the Lord was doing even then. Because hopefully in hindsight, you've been able to kind of look back and go, oh. You can see his hand at work in spite of your rebellion. You know, make sure to include God in the story all the way through because he was active all the way through. Thirdly, don't tell people, please, don't tell people. But then I found Jesus, okay? Because here's the thing, Jesus wasn't hiding. Jesus wasn't in rebellion. You were. Jesus found you. Okay, I want to make sure that, that that's really, really understood. Jesus found you, not the other way around. So tell people the Lord found you because that's the truth. Explain how God, how he got your attention. Explain what, what methods and what people he used to bring you to faith and how, how he's drastically changed your life since then. And that's all good stuff, okay? But bear in mind... And this is really important. Any bad habit that you've managed to kick or, or any good habits that you've taken on or um, you know, maybe any addictions that you've overcome or any change of heart or mind toward another person, all of that, that's not due to your own strength or your own abilities. That is entirely by the grace of God. Don't downplay that. Don't, don't forget that. 
You know, for one thing, bragging about how you, you know, how I overcame sin, that not only neglects God's sovereign role in the process, but it can keep a struggling brother or sister from realizing that it's not about their ability to overcome sin in their life. It's about how Christ already defeated sin. And we are blessed to be able to walk in the victory that he won. It's very different, very different. So in short, don't revel in your past. Give God the glory in everything and use your own testimony as a door to share the gospel message. And we're going to come back to the last point. But for now, some of you may be thinking, but my testimony is embarrassing. I don't want people to know I used to fill in the blank, whatever. And to that, I say, Paul tortured Christians. Full stop. If it's a contest, you lose. <laughs> okay? Others might think, well, I don't really have a testimony. I grew up in church. You know, I, my parents were believers. I never really rebelled against them. And, and, and while I'm definitely a sinner, I don't have a, a typical testimony. And to that person, I say, you are so blessed. You have fewer regrets than most of us. Good for you. Good for you. But that doesn't mean you don't have a testimony. You were still dead in your sins and transgressions before in Christ God made you alive, right? It's Ephesians 2. You do have the ability to testify to God's goodness, both in the fact that, that he saved you and that he allowed you to experience the wonderful grace of, of godly parents and a stable religious background. That's all good stuff. And on top of that, there, there's more to your testimony than maybe you know. And we're going we're gonna to get a hint in the second part of this sentence, okay? Um, don't worry. The rest of it's not as long as that point, okay? Um, Paul and Barnabas declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, we spent a, a good amount of time on what that's referring to these last few weeks. So I just want to give you a quick summary, okay? In Acts chapter 10, a person pretty much, uh, before Acts chapter 10, I should say, uh, a person either had to be a natural-born Jew or else a Jewish convert in order to be considered one of God's people. But when God gave his Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, Peter recognized it immediately. And he immersed them and he inducted them into the church. And from that point on, the almost entirely Jewish church was in awe watching how the Lord was working outside of the official nation of Israel. He was bringing people from all nations. He just threw the door wide open. Anyway, Paul and Barnabas were declaring a bunch of stuff that they'd seen to back up this fact. So their testimony before the church wasn't just about what God had done with them. It was also about what God had done for others. And we should be willing to do the same thing. We should be willing to testify about what God has done for others. You know, just like a testimony in a court of law. It's not just about what we've personally experienced. It's also about what we know has happened in the lives of others, whether by observation or historical record, you know, reliable witness. And this is, this is a very consistent theme in Scripture. I don't know if you knew this, but, but uh, out of 150 psalms, eight of them refer to God bringing his people out of Egypt. It's a pretty high per percentage there. And, and, and both the Old and the New Testaments are, are just loaded with reminders about what God has done for his people Israel. Why? It's for the same reasons, because it gives him glory because it edifies the listener, and because it draws people to him. And if you, if you don't feel like your own testimony is compelling enough to do those things, first, I'd say you're wrong. But if you still struggle with that, if you're, if you, you know, you, 
then guys, we have a really deep well to draw from because of the experiences of those around us, of those we know and love, the experiences of people in Scripture, things that God has done in the lives of others. I mean, we've all seen his work. We've all seen his work in the, in the lives of those around us. We've seen his hand. It's still meaningful if we describe what we've observed of what God's done for someone else. When God produces reconciliation in a family, someone in your Bible study, that's a story worth sharing. When he miraculously heals a brother or sister from disease, that's worth sharing. Okay, So, so when you share it, you're giving testimony. Am I making sense? Okay, I hope so. All right. Okay, so... We see in this verse how important it is to testify to the work of God in us, to testify to the work of God in others, but we must not miss what is the linchpin of this whole thing, faith. Remember the purpose of testimony is important. It's to point people to the cross. It's to introduce them uh, to what God has done through Jesus Christ, His Son, which is the gospel. It's... It's through the message of Christ that the Holy Spirit produces life change. And that change can be a part of what makes a person's testimony so compelling. But remember, it is the message itself that is, and I quote, the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. Romans 1.16. The sole reason that any of us get to attain eternal life in heaven is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God sent His Son, the second person of the triune God, you know, not only the Son of God, but God the Son. He sent Him into the world to live a perfect, sinless life that no one else could ever live. And then as we studied in Sunday school this morning, Jesus voluntarily gave up His life in in a horribly painful way. And He did that so that the Father could forgive the sins of the world. Our forgiveness was purchased by his blood. And then God raised him from the dead. He he had to prove, right? He had to prove that he truly was everything he said he was. He truly was who he claimed to be. To show his death was enough to redeem us. You know, and, and when we look at that story, and when we recognize that anyone who fully puts their trust in Christ receives forgiveness of their sins, that should change lives. That should make us all different. And when people look at changed lives, I think that's the greatest testimony of all. I think that's that's what bolsters the gospel. It is not the gospel, but it's what gives it credibility. I think that, that it should break our hearts to know where we are and what God has done for us. To know who I am, a sinful man. Sometimes I feel like Peter when Jesus performed the miracle of of the huge catch of fish and he just falls down on his face and he says, Lord, get away from me, the sinner. You know, he's like, "I'm, I'm a terrible person. I know what he feels like. When you are, when you are in the face of God, Coram Deo, before the face of a holy God. Woe is me just makes sense. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. I am undone. I am unraveled before the holiness of God. It should break our hearts and it should drive us to our knees in gratitude and awe. And it can open others' eyes to the truth. So we should testify. Anyway, so what do we do with that? Okay, first we respond to it, right? We respond to it. We accept this gift because we accept we can't earn God's favor, all right? And then as we grow in the Lord, we share our testimony, which includes his testimony, the gospel. We share it with others, and we do that so that they too can be saved. And that's, that's the story, you know? So the question, I guess, is what about you then? You know, if you're still on the fence, please hop down on the correct side. Give your life to Christ. You know, confess him and be baptized and, and, and bathe in the forgiveness that he offers. It's an amazing thing. You know, and if you've done that, then, then share what you've received so that others can receive the same thing. Uh, and I guess in just a moment, we're, we're going to sing together. And, um, you know, if you know that you need repentance and faith in the grace of God, then listen to what he says to you and obey, okay? Okay.